Hello everyone, I'm Matthew Delvedova and this is The Delhi Podcast. The show features people I find interesting in the world of sports and entertainment, health and fitness, business and startups. We'll discuss a wide range of topics including things like self-improvement and growth, personal journeys, pivotal career moments and much more. Thanks for coming along for the ride. Remember, if you enjoy this content, be sure to subscribe to the Daily Podcast on Apple or wherever else you listen to your podcast. All right, let's get started. Welcome to this episode of the Daily Podcast. Very excited to have Jason Calacanis on the pod. Thanks for coming on. Ah, it's great to be here. It's great to be here. Are you, are you okay in the uh, pandemic? I know you're not playing any basketball, right? Uh, I've been working out and, and staying ready for next season and uh, hopefully we can get started soon so we can uh, get the Olympics in as well. But uh, doing, doing okay. What about you? You know, I'm, it's very strange because I've invested twice as much, two times as many companies during the pandemic as I did before the pandemic because a Zoom meeting with a founder takes 20 minutes, 30 minutes. You get it done. You don't have to have the hour, hour and a half that you would at an office. And then our accelerator, we run, we run an accelerator. I think you've been to it. When you have the accelerator, you know, that's like a whole day. Now the accelerator is all virtual. So it happens over 75 minutes, 90 minutes. And three times as many investors have been coming to the accelerator remote and then the number of qualified com- the number of companies applying is still the same 500 to 1000 for seven spots but the number of qualified companies has increased because we have companies from Australia or Europe you know or Florida and and they didn't want to move here for 12 weeks they didn't want to commute so the quality of the companies is going up and then at the same time i've been doing angel university the course i teach for uh, online and I do it every month because I have more free time. And when I did it in person, we'd have 50 people come. Now we're having 250 and I think the biggest one was 500 people. Wow. So the number of people joining my syndicate, we had, I think 1900 at the beginning of the year, we now have 5,500 people. That, that's a pretty incredible growth. Uh, can you just back up and maybe yeah. just give everyone a quick background on yourself and how you got into startups and, and venture capital? Yeah, very simple. I was a journalist um, who used to cover technology in the 90s. Before that, I was like, my first job was cleaning laser printers, like just fixing broken printers when they would get a paper jam. So I just always loved computers. Then I was a journalist writing about computers. Uh, and then I started companies and I became entrepreneurial. And a friend of mine who was working at a venture capital firm called Sequoia Capital said, hey, you know, you introduced us to this car company, Tesla. You, you told us about this like social network, Twitter, and this online poker game, Zynga. Uh, you seem to know a lot of good people. How about if we just gave you like, I don't know, 25 or 50K and you just invested in whatever you wanted? And I was like, okay. I was like, how does that work? And they're like, well, whatever you make, we'll split it 50-50. I was like, okay. And I just started writing checks. And in the first seven investments, I hit Uber, Thumbtack, and Data Stacks. Uber's already public. And there's rumors or you know, a lot of information online you could search about Thumbtack and Data Stacks might go public. So just in those first seven or so investments, I hit 
you know, here now 10 years later, three that could go public. So I got really lucky. It would be like, be like joining the NBA and like you hit three half court shots to win three championships, you know, <laughs> like just doesn't really happen. So I got super lucky. Um, and then my friends, I had a lot of rich friends from the tech industry and they were like, you should have a fund. So I just started like a little $10 million fund. And then in that fund, I hit com.com and Robinhood and Trello and, and, and Superhuman. So like a couple of other really big companies. Now I'm on my third fund. The third fund is about $40 million or so. Um, and then my friend started something called AngelList. And he's like, hey, would you like to start a syndicate there? So I started a syndicate. The first deal I shared was a company that couldn't raise money. They met 70 or 80 investors and nobody would invest because they were making a meditation app and everybody thought that was really stupid. And so I was like, I don't think that's stupid because I know Phil Jackson from the Lakers and I had become friendly with um, one of his family members and he had Shaq and he had Kobe meditating. And it turned out that at UCLA, there was a meditation school, like a mindfulness school. And in my mind, I was like, wait a second, Phil Jackson's the greatest coach in history. Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant are two of the top 10 players in history. And they're meditating. Meditating is the real deal. So I gave the founders of Com $378,000. And it's a, you know, reportedly, according to press reports, it's now a, a $2 billion company. I then took that syndicate off of AngelList and I made my own uh, platform, uh, which is called thesyndicate.com. So it took me a little while to get that domain name, but I thought it was a cool domain name. And I was kind of bigger than AngelList. So it was kind of like, I could be on AngelList and they were kind of constraining me. And I was like, you know what? I don't need to have a boss. Like I'm bigger than you guys. So I'll just start my own thing. So yep. they, they taught me a lot. They taught me how syndicates worked, but syndicates really aren't that complicated. It's just a legal structure called an SPV. Yeah. Basically, it's an LLC with a bunch of members who pool their money together to invest in something. And then if it works out, the person who put it all together gets 20% of the gain. That's called carry. So if the $378,000 in calm turns into a hundred million dollars and there's a gain of a hundred ninety nine million dollars the person who set that up gets 20 percent of that or roughly 20 million dollars so um we've now done 140 or so syndicate deals the first 40 were on AngelList, um but they wouldn't give me the deal i wanted so i was like well i'm lebron james i'm kevin durant either give me what i want or i'm leaving <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, yeah, no, we want everybody to get paid the same amount of money. And I'm like, that's not, that's socialism. Like, this is, this is not like uh, socialism, is it? And they were like, yeah, it is socialism. And I said, you know what, Naval, I think I'll go off on my own. And so they basically <laughs> let Kevin Durant or LeBron James leave the building. Pretty stupid on their part. Uh, probably cost them like hundreds of millions of dollars, but um, it, it's actually worked out really well for me because the syndicate.com now is doing, I think we did six deals in July, six deals in August. Wow. You know, and the average deal size is, I mean, you're in the syndicate. Yeah. So the average deal size is 500 K to a million dollars. It used to be 200 to 500. So it's roughly doubled this year. Yeah. And, uh, I think 
you know, at, at some point I could have somebody like you and, and invite you to join the syndicate and syndicate your deals with us or somebody else, right? So yeah. that we haven't done that yet, um, but I'm considering it maybe next year. Yeah, you probably want to see a bit more of a track record from me first. Uh, I've syndicated <laughs> uh, three deals so far on AngelList and um, it's been a great place to, to learn. and Great place to learn. Yeah. And, and get a feel for it and try to build a, a track record. But where, I guess on that, where do you see that the syndicate going? I was going to save that question for later. Like what, what else yeah, you know, is out there that you want to try to achieve? It's a very interesting thing. Um, there, there's two par- there's really three parallel tracks as an, an investor in private companies you can go. The first is you can invest your money. So if you're a high net worth individual, like an NBA player, and you want to write 100K, 250K checks, you can do that. Then you can decide to do a fund and you can take other people's money and you can deploy it. And you deploy, you know, a 10 or $20 million fund over three or four years. And 10 years later, you can do it. You can get the returns of that, right? And then there's this syndicate thing. And the syndicate thing is really interesting because when you share a deal, you have to keep yourself really honest because every single deal, you don't know how much is going to come in. So you write your deal memo, you send it to 100 people, or in my case, 5,500. The last deal I just sent, I had a 250K allocation and like over a million dollars has come in. So I have four times the demand for that one deal that I just got a text about, you know, right before we started taping this podcast. Other times I'll send something, we'll have a million dollar allocation and I'll get 500,000 in demand. So you really don't know what the appetite is for each deal. And what I like about that is it keeps me sharp. I have to really earn it. Now, when you have a fund or it's your own money, when it's your own money, you just spend it and whatever. When you have a fund, the feedback loop is 10 years later, right? Mm. Or seven or eight. Whenever you decide to raise the next fund, your LPs look at your track record and say, do I want to do the next one or not? With a syndicate, I really think, do I want to share this or not? And so what I kept doing was over time, I raised the benchmark for what I was willing to syndicate. And I just said at a certain point, if your product's not launched, and you don't have 25, 50K in revenue a month, and you don't have you know, what we call product market fit, which is the product and the customers, the customers like the product basically and they use it. If you don't have that yet, have an accelerator over here. Let's, let's have you in the accelerator until such time as consumers love your product. Now it doesn't have to be a million consumers, but it should be dozens, right? Uh, and so I keep raising as time goes on the benchmark of a syndicate, which then makes my track record better, which then makes the companies more, um, viable and you'll have less zeros. So I, I think that I'll get to 10,000 members, um, and do two deals a week, a hundred deals a year. I think there'll be a million dollars a deal on average eventually, uh, but even if it was just 500, then you could put 50 million to work a year. And I'm going to, I'm 49 now. I'm going to work for 10 more years, I think, because uh, I love it so much. So I'll put a half, uh, half billion dollars to work over that period of time. And if I can 10X that, you know, that would be $5 billion. And I would get 20% of that, which would be a billion. 
and then I can try to buy the Knicks, which that, is really the goal here. That, to that's try the to grand the, plan? That is kind of the grand plan because, you know, I got the house, I got the car, I got the family. I kind of checked off every box. Uh, and really the only thing left is bringing a championship to the New York Knickerbockers. That's my, that's my final goal <laughs> is to buy the Knicks or at least lin, li, have a syndicate. Like if I have 10,000 people in the syndicate, someday I could put down a hundred million of my own money. And for the other $3 billion or whatever it winds up costing, just go to the syndicate and say, anybody else want to put a hundred K in? And all of a sudden a couple of thousand people do it. We might be actually able to pull it off buy the Knicks and then treat the players well and win a championship and not give away all our draft picks for 37-year-old players with bad knees. <laughs> you know a little bit more about this than I do. Uh, I, I want to pick your brain more on the startup stuff. But uh, so what, one of the things I think um, like you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to help educate people. And um, that's how I kind of got connected with you on Twitter and um yeah you know you you've been great in helping me out especially early on and um attending uh the launch incubator and um or the accelerator and, and seeing these companies pitch and and the different work you do with them and you wrote the book uh angel um can yeah. you talk a bit about why you did that and i guess what you wanted to get across to to people who were interested in learning more yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting because I started my career as a writer and I always wanted to write a book. But I, I, I think like writing a book, just to write a book is kind of dumb because I kind of think books are special, right? Like if you write a book, you should write, a, you should write maybe one book or two books in your lifetime when you really have something that you're an expert on or something that is very important for you to share with people. And I thought after I did about a hundred of these angel investments, I had figured some things out. <clears throat> I had figured out how to turn this from what most people thought angel investing was kind of stupid. And they thought it was a waste of money and it was just lottery tickets. They thought it was gambling. And everybody used to think angel investors were these weird, just rich people who place silly bets. And I looked at it and I started deconstructing how I hit the winners. And I started analyzing my game, right? And I started really studying, okay, here's where I lost and here's where I won. Here's where I almost won. And I really examined it with a friend of mine and, and my team and said, let's really take a look at every single investment, why we won and why we lost. And would we make those same investments again? And I started to come up with my own theories of how to do this. And one of those theories was, well, pretty obvious, but you have to be, have enough investments to hit an outlier. So if you do five angel investments, it's probably not enough to hit an outlier. Most people would say to hit an outlier like an Uber or a Com or a Thumbtack or a Robinhood, if you're investing in real technology companies from Silicon Valley or you know, New York or LA or you know, a tech hub, Sydney, yeah. uh, you, you might need to hit more like 30. So that was like one kind of insight. And then the other insight was, wait a second, most of these companies never get their product launched. So if you just waited till the product was launched, you could eliminate nine out of 10 failures. Okay, so you put those two things together. Then I realized, 
wait a second, all these companies I'm investing in, they come back to me five, six, seven times to give them more money. So there's no rush. There's no FOMO. There's, if you miss this investment, if you're kind to the founder and you, you're a normal person who builds a relationship with them and you missed Uber at $5 billion, a $5 million valuation when I invested, well, the next valuation was 20. Um, or you miss Robinhood at you know, 10 million, the next valuation was 20 or 30. So you typically have four or five times to invest in the company. So take your time, get to know the person. So I started to put all these things together and I was like, well, well here's a playbook. Here's a playbook, right? And, and, and like D'Antoni figured out, three pointers pay off 50% more than twos and mid-range mid shots and three pointers aren't very different. They're typically five or six feet different. So why would you take a mid-range one when you could either do a layup or a three-pointer? And look how the whole game changed, right? Yeah. That that whole when you look at the shot chart for the NBA from 20 years ago to now, it was like all these mid-range shots, no threes, and some dunks. Now you look, it's all threes, dunks, you know, and once in a while, Carmelo Anthony does some crazy you know, mid-range jumper. And that's why he had to change his entire game. And, that, and that's why you did so well, right? Like you're fearless going to the basket and you're a good three-point shooter. Like that's the new, the new prototype. So I kind of had that epiphany. I had figured something out. Now, do I share it or do I keep it for myself? That was the next piece. And then I said, wait a second. Deal flow is based in our industry. The more that you help other people, the more deal flow comes to you. And deal flow is how you find outliers. So when you find a great company, you email me. When I find a great company, I email you. You say, hey, you know, you might wanna take a look at this. And so I was like, wait a second, I have this huge platform. I have these insights. Let me see if I can uh, sell this book. I, the book was so popular, I, there was an auction for it. I had like six or seven bids. I went with the greatest publisher in business, HarperCollins. It got translated into nine languages. And lo and behold, the syndicate started growing. The LP base and my fund started growing. But most importantly, all of this deal flow started coming to me. And you're just starting to experience this. This is your third year of angel investing, I believe. Yeah, we met to my fourth now, yeah. Fourth now, right. I knew, I knew we met like three or four years ago yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you just absolutely destroyed the Warriors like a banshee. <laughs> I was like watching you play in those games and I'm like, who is this guy who just causes so much problems on the court for everybody? I was like, God, I wish that guy was on my team. <laughs> I wish that guy was a Nick. <laughs> and so I was like, if I share this with people, then they'll come to me. And lo and behold, you slid into my DMs. We happen to knew, I think we both knew Andrew Bogut in common. Yep. And, and that's what keeps happening to me. Every now and then, you know, some celebrity or athlete or just a founder or a rich person says, I read your book. It's funny and it's insightful. And I would like to try this angel investing thing. And then I made a course based on it. And I've now taught Angel University 19 times in three years and I've taught it in Australia twice, um, Hong Kong, London, New York, Miami, just everywhere. Yeah. And then I've started doing it online. So all of that sharing of knowledge 
then makes you more and more and more valuable. Like Daryl Morey, he's super valuable because he figured something out, right? And like, he's always going to have a job. And D'Antoni and whoever it is who figures these things out, you, you can keep them for yourself or you can explain them and write a book. Yeah. And so it's worked out really well for me, um, you know, in that regard. And it's a two-way street. So when I saw you were doing your podcast, I was like, oh, great, great idea, right? Like you're a celebrity. And now every time you have this conversation with somebody, you're promoting them, sure, but you're actually secretly learning, right? You get to ask them questions. And that's, the, that's like the great secret of podcasting too. Yeah. Is podcasts are like going for your MBA. You can get anybody you want on your podcast and you ask them questions. They give you the answers and you become smarter. So like this is your, what, 20th podcast or something? You yeah, just about started? 15th. So it's, uh, it's been awesome so far. And it's, it's funny, like you said, all these different opportunities just are randomly starting to pop up because of this. And, you know, people reaching out, wanting to come on. And yeah, why do you think it's important? And you're obviously a successful podcaster yourself. Like you have all these different things, but they all tie in together. How important is it to have um, those different areas where people can um, reach you and get to know you, whether it's a book, a podcast, um, your syndicate, all these different things that connect? Yeah, so it's, it's basically a flywheel. And the way the flywheel works is you know, each of these things helps the next thing in the, in the process and it increases the velocity. Yeah. So as an example, uh, you know, when I have somebody on my podcast, um, I'm helping that person, I'm deepening that relationship. And now my podcast has 200,000 people who view each one. Uh, and I do it 130 or 40 times a year. There's six full-time people working on it. I've done it for 10 years. There's a thousand episodes now. And those people then, when they have an idea for a company, they go, oh, you know, I saw that episode with Jason and this person or Jason and Travis from Uber or Jason and the founder of Pixar. And I learned something. Oh yeah, and he said he's an angel investor. So maybe I should email him and tell him about my idea. And I get 500 emails a day. Half of them are people with ideas. Half of them are just people trying to sell me stuff. <laughs> and then there's like this like 10% which are, I click on these 30 emails a day and I see a product that's like, whoa, that's an incredible product. And so then we invite them to the accelerator. Then they graduate from the, and, and we give them a hundred grand. Then they graduate from the accelerator. And if they do a good job, we really get to know them. Then we share them with the syndicate. Now hundreds of people get exposed to them. Those people invest. They may buy the product. They may know the product then that company gets good at what they do and I have them back on the podcast. Mm. So now the pod, so they, they watched the podcast. They emailed me, we invested, they built a great company. The syndicate made money on it. Hopefully they got money from us and then they become a podcast guest, which then inspires the next group. And so that flywheel now for me is going so fast that I have 12 people on my team and I'm adding seven people in the next year. And it, it, it's, it's actually just gotten so big. I, I can't even keep up with it. I, I have 250 investments now. And the way I'm able to keep up with them is I have a Slack channel 
And in the Slack instance, I, each company has their own private room. And, you know, every day for an hour, I start at the top and I just start saying hello to everybody. How's it going? What are you working on? And then I just, you know, the next day I try to do another 10 or 20 of those. The next day I do another 10 or 20 of those. And I just try to keep up with everything. And, and it's not easy. Uh, but every, you know, pre-pandemic, every time somebody would graduate from the accelerator, I would go out in the barbecue, put two briskets, pork shoulder, a couple ribs, and I would smoke for 12 hours, chop up the meat, invite the graduating class, invite my top 50 investor friends, and invite the portfolio company. So I got 75 people at the house. They all hang out. And again, there's the flywheel. And that's the secret part of the flywheel, which you'll be coming to now that you're in the area. You'll be part of that flywheel of coming over and you'll be like, wow, there's some, some pretty good brisket. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> these ribs are pretty great. And then you meet four or five people. And then one of them becomes your friend and you go, hey, how did we meet again? It's like, oh, we're at J. Cal's house. Oh yeah, great. And really that's this whole, that's the amazing thing about Silicon Valley is this openness. You know, like everybody is just open to helping each other. And it is a really unique reason why America has just become such an exceptional company, a country rather, <laughs> that's a company would be exceptional as well. But we have these companies that go around the world. It's the spirit of helping each other and of optimism. And one of the reasons I was so attracted to Australia is when I went to Australia, it felt like I was in New York again or some combination of New York and Los Angeles you have this spirit in Australia of people who are bold, they're audacious, they're confident, and they believe the future is optimistic. And then sometimes I go to Europe and I, you know, once in a while I see that, but it kind of feels like a retirement community. You know, you go to Japan and I'm, you know, in Japan, they kind of feel like uh, the best days are behind us and, maybe we'll just make products for Japan. But I mean, Australia believes after Canva and Atlassian that they can build companies that are as great as American companies. They believe that in Australia. And guess what? Yeah. Canva and Atlassian did it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, this little 30, what is it? 30 million people, 40 million people in uh, Australia. 25, I think. It's 25 million people. I mean, yeah. you're punching way above your weight. The other country that's really fascinating to me is um, Sweden. Uh, it's, and I'm, I'm a quarter Swedish. It's like, they have nine unicorns in Sweden, maybe 10 now. Really? And you're like, how is that possible? They're optimistic and they believe in this ecosystem approach. Yeah. Every time you help people, like with this podcast, you're helping so many people. I know in the NBA, you know, there's a bunch of other players who are interested in investing. And I know you talk to them. You, if you keep doing that kind of stuff, it comes back to you 20x. That's the big lesson. The yeah. more you put out in the world, to your original question where I read the book, why do the podcast? Yeah. The more you put out, the more you get back. And it really is the lesson of my lifetime is just be incredibly generous with your time. And then I have one rule with my team and I have to train them over and over again, which is never underestimate anyone. Because I cannot tell you, Matthew, how many times... I meet somebody and they're so not impressive, you know, and they're awkward. And then 18 months later, they figured it out and they got a company that's doing 10 million a year in revenue and yeah. everybody's trying to invest. So when people come to work for me, I say, listen, rule number one, don't underestimate anybody. 
assume they're going to figure it out yeah. and treat them respectfully and give them as much time as you can and be super positive because this is hard. I mean, you see it in your portfolio. How many times do you make this investment in a company and you think this is the one and then you just watch them stumble and fall and get their asses kicked. And then some other company, you're like, I'm making this investment. Mm, who knows? We'll see. And then all of a sudden they kick ass. Nobody knows. Nobody yeah. knows which thing's going to work. My top two investments are a cab company and a meditation app. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, I think that's crazy. one of the coolest things about uh, the tech world and, and venture world is how helpful everyone is. And I think that's one of the things that really surprised me is every time I would, you know, get on a call with somebody, they're always asking, you know, how they can help and, oh, I can introduce you to these two or three people. And before you know it, you've got, you know, 12, 15 people you got to try to schedule calls with because everyone just keeps, keeps going yep. and going. But it's been an awesome um, Is it like that in the NBA? Like when you go on a team, does somebody pull you aside and say, hey, you know what? You, you got to learn how to do this pick and roll a little better or you should learn how to like do this move or do they like to keep those things close to the vest and not share them? Uh, no, I think people people definitely share like on on the same team, and I think um, there's definitely a culture of veterans helping out the younger guys, not just with on the court stuff, but um, off the court stuff, financial stuff. You know, if, if they got good. different things, um, and I, I had some great mentors. Um, you know, my first few years in the league, and definitely try to pass it on now to those younger guys because you know, you, you don't want them to make mistakes that can be avoided. So can you talk a bit about um, how you went to Australia and how that all came about and, and what are your plans for down there for the future? Yeah, well, so what happened was, I don't know, maybe in the late, maybe late 90s, early 2000s, um, I was this kid from Brooklyn living in New York and I was doing my magazine and uh, some conference, I think it was like, Comdex or something had decided to do an event in Australia for the for the sort of whole, you know, uh, Pacific region down there. <clears throat> and they said, we really want you to come speak. I was like, wow, that's incredible. And they're like, and we'll send you a business class ticket. And we'll put you in a hotel. And I was like, what's the catch? They're like, well, you have to speak for an hour. And I was like, give me a business class ticket to Australia. And I was, I had never been anywhere in my life. Like I, I think I'd been to like Paris. Like that was like the extent of my travel. I was like, yeah, I'll go. So I went and I have a friend, Mark Pesci, who lived there. And I made a couple of friends and I went to Harry to wheels and had a, you know, a meat pie with some of that mashed potatoes and gravy on. And I went to like all these great places. And I was like, I love it here. This place is great. And I climbed the Bay bridge. I did that like Bay bridge climb and, I went to the, the zoo on the ferry, uh, whatever place. And I was like, this is great. And then, uh, you know, whatever, a decade later, Melbourne uh, came to me and said, hey, we want you to do your launch festival here. And Sydney came to me at the same time, said, we want you to do your launch festival there. And Melbourne, I guess, had stolen every tech conference. Um, and I said, listen, I'm really tired of actually doing the conference in San Francisco because I kept getting literally hit up by like the, the mafia unions here, which is literally like 
the, the unions in San Francisco came to me and they were like, you got uh, three guys here working the cameras? I'm like, yeah, I got three camera operators. Like this, the one shot, the two shot, the wide shot. They're like, yeah, you need eight. I was like, no, no, I don't need eight. I got three. It's perfect. Trust me, I know how to do videos, what I've been doing my whole life. They're like, nah, you need eight. I was like, no, no, I got my three. They're like, you're going to have eight. And I was like, well, I, what is that going to cost? And they're like, it's going to cost like $2,000 a day per person. I was like, I'm not doing that. So then they show up and they put a big protest outside. And I was just like, oh my God, these, these maniacs are like, I had a 15,000 person conference in San Francisco. And I was so frustrated with the city because this, was, this wasn't just one instance of the Teamsters trying to shake me down. I mean, it was happening over and over and over again. And it just got so frustrating that Australia, uh, <laughs> Melbourne and Sydney were like, we'll, we'll pay for everything. If you just bring your conference down here, we'll give you a venue, we'll give you the AV, uh, and we'll fly your team out. And I was like, that sounds delightful. Thank you. And I decided to move the conference there for a couple of years. And then, uh, you know, in the process, I got rich because I hit a couple of home runs. And I was like, uh, I'm going to rent a boat and go to the Great Barrier Reef. So I just rented a little, not like a giant yacht, but, you know, a little yacht. And I went scuba diving the Great Barrier Reef. I was like, this is incredible. Then the next year, I was like, what am I going to do this year? Then I went to uh, Hamilton Island and I saw the Whitsundays. Yeah. The most beautiful beach in the world. And I went wave running, you know, and I, and my daughter held a koala and, you know, at the koala rescue. And I was like, ah, this is amazing. How delightful. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't been able to go back pandemic and all that stuff, but I'm hoping once the pandemic settles down, I'll give, uh, you know, Sydney and Melbourne and Perth the ability to, you know, if they want to do it again, to underwrite it. I don't make any money off the conferences. I kind of break even on them and it's great for deal flow, but I've invested in like six or seven companies down there. And uh, I really want to go to Alice Springs. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to see Darwin as that's up North. Yeah. I hear that's incredible for wildlife. Yeah. And then on the West coast, where are all the whales that you can swim with the giant whale sharks? Uh, is that in Perth as well? Or off it might there? Be, is that the Westmost city of Perth? Yeah. The way out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking those are the next, I got a couple more bucket list items. Uh, where else should I go? You can tie it all in together and uh, yeah. work and play. Yeah, that's what, for me, that's what it's about. You know, I got like bucket lists I want to do, you know, and uh, the food is so great. I mean, I, yeah. when I was in uh, Sydney this time, I went to uh, Key. They reopened Key. That was amazing. Tetsuya, amazing. I mean, I have been to so many great restaurants in Australia. I can't even tell you. Like, and I'm a foodie from New York lived in Los Angeles and live in San Francisco. These are three great foodie towns. Every time I go to Australia, I just think I can live here. You know, like I, if the United States, like if Trump wins like his sixth and seventh term, <laughs> I think I'm moving to Sydney or Melbourne. <laughs> I don't know which one I should go to, but. Oh, I'm sure there's a uh, big competition. There's always competition between Sydney and Melbourne. So um, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, so you can use that. My to boy, you. Andrew Bogut's from Melbourne. Wait, yeah. now where are you from again? I forgot. I'm from two hours away from Melbourne. So I'm in yeah. Maryborough, um, bit, yeah. bit out in the bush there. Not a little yeah. bit quieter than Melbourne, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a Victorian. So I got to go. You got some snakes up there. You got to be careful. Stay yeah, away from those, can get stay away from those brown ones. <laughs> I hear the, um, the little ones that are a problem. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things you got to look out for. But uh, just going back to like yeah. athletes investing in uh, like getting into angel investing, also like 
celebrities, musicians, it seems like it's a lot more accessible and a lot more people are, you know, reading about it, hearing about it and wanting to get involved. Now, YouTube stars and TikTok yeah. people, all these people are trying to um, invest. Do you have any different advice for, for those people trying to get started or is it very similar? I think the, the trap for a lot of those folks is that they'll probably have people in their orbit who are friends of theirs who have ideas mm. and they may want to help their friends and they may invest in ideas. When you're starting out, if you want to just avoid a lot of mistakes, don't, just tell people, I don't invest in ideas. I invest in existing businesses. Mm. So I have a Goldilocks zone. This is too hot for me. If it's a publicly traded company or the company's worth $100 million and you're raising $25 million, that's too hot. If you have an idea, that's too cold. But just right for me is when you get that 10th customer and you're at $250,000 a year in revenue and I can talk to that customer. Or my due diligence person can talk to those customers. And you can send me six months of financials. If you, don't do dil if you don't learn how to do due diligence, which is the process of when you meet with somebody, and we we've talked about this before, you just take out your pen and paper and you write down everything they say. And anything that's a fact, when you get back to your house or your cafe, or when, in your case, eating your avocado, avocado toast every morning, you just underline the facts right? You underline those facts. Then you hire an assistant and you say, we're going to get this due diligence package from them. I want to check these facts. They said they made $72,000 in, in the first quarter of the year and $115,000. We're going to ask them for their bank statements. We're going to ask them for their contracts. I had one time a company told me they had a contract with Google and Facebook. And this was a company that had already raised money. And I was like, really, Google and Facebook are buying this? They're like, yeah, absolutely. So then it goes into diligence. And one of my people, Ashley says, hey, boss, I got an issue with this deal that we committed to. And I said, yeah, well, we committed pending due diligence. And he said, well, they, I asked him for the contract three times. And they said, they're going to get it to me. But this has been like, you know, it's been eight weeks. And I, I still don't have these, the Google or the Facebook contract. I said, all right, let me get on the phone with them. I get on the phone. He says, oh, well, we have an oral commitment from them. And I said, an oral commitment? What do you mean? He's like, well, they told us they want to use the product. And I was like, okay, for how much money and, and when is the contract going to be done? And uh, they're like, well, we're working on that. And I said, well, who are you working with? Who's the person at Facebook and who's the person at Google? Let me talk to them and see. Maybe I can even help you get it over the finish line. If I tell them I'm investing, maybe they'll do it. They're like, well, we met the Google person at this conference. I don't remember his name and the Facebook person, they haven't gotten back to me yet. So I sent them four emails and I was like, oh my God, this person is lying to me. Mm -hmm. And I wrote about it in the book about how, you know, like I've been lied to. And for the first 40 or 50 investments, I didn't do due diligence. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know you could ask for the documents. And there's, so there's something called a document library. Now for a company that's just an idea, there is no document library. It's just an idea in somebody's head. But when a company becomes a year old and they have these 10 customers, they will have an accountant. They will have bank statements. They will have contracts. They will have, if they're doing it right. Mm. 
Yeah. And so you just say, oh, can you give us your diligence folder? They'll put it in a Dropbox or a Google folder and they'll send it to you. You sign a non-disclosure maybe. You probably don't have to. It's just top level information. And uh, you check it and you make sure everything checks out. Another time I invested in a company um, or we were about to invest in a company. And then I got the cap table, which is the capitalization table. This means who owns what shares. I got the cap table and 80% of the company was owned by uh, like a combination of one investor and their web development shop. Mm. So this founder who didn't know any better had given, taken like $25,000 for a third of the company and then given another third of the company to the invest, this other investor for building an app, their 1.0 app over, you know, whatever a year. So now you have 65, 70% of the company being owned by one person who built a really shitty app, to be honest, and gave him 25 grand. That's well, that company's cap table is broken forever. It's broken. It can't be fixed because then the next group of investors is going to be investing millions of dollars. And then that person owns two thirds of it. And they're not even involved with the company anymore. So I said, Hey, listen, you can go back to that investor and say, the actual amount of value you got it is worth 10%. I'm willing to give you 10% or I'm shutting the company down and starting a new one, uh, which is what the founder to their credit did. Um, Cause they realized that they had put themselves in, in, in a bad place. So diligence is important. Having a great lawyer is important yeah. and having a great lawyer who's done startup law is important because they just know what's standard and what's not standard. Yeah. And if you're going into a company and it gets to you as an NBA player, let's say, or a musician, it's probably already gotten past my desk and I said no. Yeah. So you have to start worrying like when the deal gets to you, it's probably been passed over. It's sort of like the last apple in the bushel. It's the most bruised apple you don't want to eat. So, and when I was starting as an angel investor, maybe I was, you know, in Silicon Valley, I was like getting an apple from the middle of the bushel, but I wasn't getting the best ones. Yeah. So you want to start to make those relationships with the best investors, especially if you're a celebrity, you have something to offer, right? You can promote stuff and say, hey, Sequoia, hey, Jason Calacanis, hey, Angel List, hey, whoever it is who's already got a good track record, you make those relationships and say, would you help me make 10, 25K investments? I just want to get my feet wet and make very small investments slowly. Yeah. There's no rush here. The big mistake people make is they invest in their friends, cousins, sorority sisters, ex-boyfriend's company. And that person's never done anything and they don't know what they're doing. But if you can align yourself with the people who are in the industry, you'll do better, right? Yeah, no, that, that's very good advice. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm you, not scouting the next point guard, for, you know, for the Warriors. Like, what the not, fuck not do yet. I know about scouting the, point guards? You wait until you get the Knicks and then you'll be doing it, right? Then I'll ask you. You'll come help me be a GM or something by that time. <laughs> uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Bitcoin or uh, other cryptocurrencies? Yeah, so crypto is fascinating. You know, I was fascinated by 10 years ago and I started writing about it and having people on the podcast, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10 years ago, because it's a very fundamentally, it's a collection of really interesting technologies. You have the fact that it's electronic money. That's interesting. You have the fact that it's, uh, you know, there's blockchain, smart contracts, there's all these really fascinating technologies 
all put together to make these, you know, peer-to-peer distributed, you know, no central authority projects. So this very weird, interesting amalgamation of technologies. The problem is that most people never found a use case for it. So while they were very interesting intellectually, there was no use case. And then you had a use case emerge, which was the ICO, a coin offering, which was basically kind of like angel investing, but instead of all the stuff you and I have talked about today, there was never a product. Mm -hmm. And then I watched all the people who were kind of grifters and outside the industry claim they had a new idea that was going to beat Uber or was going to kill Airbnb because they were going to put all the Airbnbs on a blockchain or Ubers would be moving with a cryptocurrency and whatever. But these people had never built anything in their lives. They had zero credibility. And then you started looking at the technology and saying like, does an immutable blockchain help Airbnb in some way? I don't think so. Now, would it help audit trails for legal documents? Maybe, you know, okay. So, okay, go ahead, build it. What they did was they just became really good at raising money. And it was very fascinating because people had, I think the most fascinating part of the whole scam that occurred in the ICO phase, which was just a total scam. And and Bitcoin's real, cryptocurrency is real, blockchain is real. But the ICO piece was a real scam because what they said was, I'm starting this new coin. Give me some of those coins that have value. Give me your Ethereum and your Bitcoin, and I'll give you these imaginary dollars and tokens that have no value. So, and with, so with that, then, yeah. like, if you just, I guess, Bitcoin and Ethereum have probably been the two, they're the two biggest, right? And yeah. have been around for, well, Bitcoin's been around for 12 years now. Yeah. Like, do you think it's here to stay and can continue growing? I think Bitcoin has staying power and I I still think there's maybe, I used to think it was like a 75% chance we would hit Bitcoin zero dollars because some better technology would come out or it would become hacked Mm. or a state actor with bad intent would take it over with like, you know, by putting a whole bunch of servers next to a nuclear reactor and they would just control everything and whatever. But Bitcoin has been quite resilient. Like the fact that it hasn't been hacked or China or North Korea or some bad actor hasn't taken it over. The fact that America or Australia or China hasn't completely banned it mm. is really fascinating, right? Like, so I think Bitcoin, um, I, I put my percentage of like Bitcoin zero at like a third. Really? And, I, and the fact that it's trading in a narrower, a narrow range now, you know, it's, it went down to like three, it went up to 20 and, I think for the majority of the last couple of years, it's existed in this like six to $10,000 range for something with no central authority for something with nobody controlling it. And it hasn't been hacked and it's trading in a range. I think it's an interesting store of value mm-hmm. and potentially it could appreciate over time and be a good investment vehicle. It still has all of those risk factors. Yeah. So if my mom wanted to put her money into something, I'd say, sure, you could put one or 2% into Bitcoin if you like, if you really like it. But I'd rather see you buy a brownstone in Brooklyn 
you know, or a, or a nice oh, house yeah. in Sydney. And I'd like you to buy stock in Disney and Apple and Amazon because they're not going anywhere. Yeah. So for a very small percentage of your net worth, fine. If you love it. Yeah. If you're a maniac, you know, like our friend Pomp, <laughs> Anthony yeah. uh, Pompliano, like, you know, like if Anthony is all in and he is young and he makes money every year and he wants to put 50% in Bitcoin and he wants to, you know, go for it and be crazy. Okay. But there's a good chance Bitcoin will not be here in 10 years. Because right. what happens if somebody makes a better technology and that one starts appreciating? Well, then you have this very quick effect. Oh, my Bitcoin's going down and people love this new Bitcoin 7.0 fork. Yeah. I need to be in that because it's more useful. Yeah. Whereas with Disney, it's not like somebody can just take Marvel and Star Wars and Mickey Mouse out of Disney and create a new kill, one. <laughs> and create a new one. You just yeah. can't kill Disney. You're yeah. not going to kill Amazon's factories and you know, hundreds of millions of prime memberships. So you got to think about the downside protection when you're investing as well, right? Yeah. When you buy a house in a major city, yeah, okay, San Francisco's house values could go down 30 or 40%. They're not going to zero. Yeah. Right? It'll How many times do you see that? Always, yeah. Have, and you have, can live in it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, so just be careful is what I would say. I don't know. You're, you seem to have gotten a little bit of the crypto bug. Yeah, uh, is it intellectual I mean, or is it uh, investment for you? Uh, I'm still exploring it more and more. Um, you know, I've been talking with Pomp and and trying to read up and and figure it out. Um, but yeah. I invested in BlockFi, a company where you can earn interest on on your Bitcoin and other crypto. So I've that's been, a smart idea. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's interesting. I think. Um, with other CEOs like MicroStrategy CEO Square have, you know, put some of their cash balance on there. I think, you know, the more companies that do that, like PayPal's offering it, um, the less risky it gets, but obviously there's still a lot yeah. of risk there. So you gotta be careful and, and not go all in. Um, I know we're, we're almost out of time. Yeah. Uh, your most favorite recent investment and why? Oh, great one. Um, you know, I, I, I am very proud of an investment I made a couple of years ago in something called Blockable, B-L-O-K-A-B-L-E.com. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're the Tesla of homes. So when you build a home, uh, you have to find a plot of land and you bring all the materials there. And if it rains, the materials get damaged and <laughs> you can't build and the neighbors complain about the noise. So you have six or seven hours to do it. But what if you built those houses in factories and then they snap together? So this is like, it's not quite prefab homes. It's modular components of homes that snap together. And, you know, it would be crazy to deliver all the parts of your Tesla to your driveway and put it together there, right? Yeah. You'd never do that. But when you start putting together a home in a factory, like I'm talking big giant factories, and then delivering them with cranes and putting them together, what you find out is you can use new materials that aren't, you can't use these materials in the field because they require special equipment to cut them. And then you don't have somebody who's a day laborer with an X-Acto knife cutting some cheap material. You have a computer laser cutting it. 
And then you snap it on and you go, you have rivets and you go, and now all of a sudden the house is done and it's 80 or 90% more um, energy efficient. And if you tried to light a fire or flood it, it wouldn't work because the materials are fire resistant and they're flood resistant and just so many innovations you can do. So that one to me has a lot of personal value. Um, there are two that you'll like. One is called FitBod and the other is Steezy. And these are part of a new um, cohort of applications on your phone like Calm, where consumers will subscribe to learn how to do dance moves in the case of Steezy. And in the case of FitBod, they learn cross fitness. And $60 a year or $100 a year for a consumer isn't a lot of money. They might spend that on a, you know, an average lunch or dinner. Um, and so people are starting to subscribe to apps for $5 a month and get really a lot of value out of them. And if you have a million or 2 million or 3 million people buying an app for five or $10 a month, it very quickly turns into a money printing machine, which is what com.com is. And mm -hmm. so I've been really looking for those businesses. We have one called Musician um, and another one called Tone Bass. Musician mm -hmm. teaches kind of every instrument, piano, guitar, whatever, singing. And then Tone Bass teaches like classical music. And it's almost like, I think they're like the TV channels, like cable channels used to be like ESPN or History Channel or Discovery except they're on your phone or your iPad. And so I'm very fascinated by that concept of consumers subscribing because we have 2 billion people with iOS devices now, and maybe there's 5 billion people with a mobile device and mm. the payment systems are built in. So how many things do you subscribe to on your iPhone now? I probably need to check and go, go through them and clean it all up, right? <laughs> you probably have to clean some up because they're so cheap you don't care. You know, what's five, 10 bucks a month if you're getting value? It's like, it's two flat whites. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. You know? I, I flat, for people who don't, or not from Australia, flat whites like a, a <laughs> Cortado or a, it's espresso and milk. It's, it's yeah. a really nice coffee. With, with a nice wide. design on top. But uh, the uh, Blockable, I thought you might've mentioned them because uh, that was one of my first uh, investments, mm. I think, in, in your syndicate. I, I oh, congratulations really on that. Cool yeah. idea and... Um, yeah, excited to see what, what they can do. Uh, They've got a bright future. They, they just had their first uh, really major installation in a place called Auburn. And they created, I think it was 12 units, six or 12 units. And these units were done very affordably, very quickly. And they're for people who were um, not only homeless, but they were homeless and had opioid addiction. Then they went to uh, rehab and as part of completing rehab, they got their own little, you know, 200 square foot, you know, studio apartment as it were in a community where they can kind of transition out of it. Now, Blockable doesn't just do, you know, small micro homes. You can snap three of them together and make a two bedroom. Mm. And now you can stack them five stories high. So they've got like a whole system of like 12, different types of blocks that can snap together. And I don't know if you know, we had these like terrible, well, you must because you had terrible fires down there too. Yeah. We had these terrible fires here and we lost you know, lots of homes and we had millions of people displaced. They can now come in with new homes that are very, very fire resistant. I mean, you could literally try and light them on fire and not succeed. So you'll see in places like 
Australia or uh, you know, here in uh, Northern California where we've had fire situations, people just coming in with maybe a thousand of these blocks at some point when they get the factories going and snapping them all together and everybody's got a home. Mm. And the homes, because they use this fancy new materials, the homes will last a hundred years, maybe they'll last 200 years because all this science has gone into composite materials that are very, very durable. And they can really start to design things. Just it's never been done before. Just like Tesla is in their factory, they made cars that were just so safe that nobody could understand how they were making such safe cars. Well, it's new materials, you know, it's batteries, it's extra space, crumple zones. You can do all these kind of really interesting things. So it makes me very positive for the world. If we can just get through today's election, we're taping this. I don't want to ruin whenever, I don't know when you're publishing, but we're taping this on election day in America. <laughs> so hopefully I'm in a good mood right now. I'm feeling positive. Uh, but if this country makes it through, I think we've got a very bright future. If not, I will see you down under. <laughs> I'm going to get the hell out of Dodge for a couple of years. Jason, thank you very much for coming on and thank you for, for your help in, you know, especially yeah. at the start of my journey, um, being so generous with your time. I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Where, you know, and best? you know what they say, you know what they say, you can always say it with some of those uh, tickets, you know, I know you get those good seats. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I'm so sure I'll, I'll be hitting you up for some good seats at some games at some point. Sounds good. Sounds good. Where is the All best right, place for people to find you on the internet? Uh, so twitter.com slash Jason, yep. Instagram.com slash Jason, if you want to see my bulldogs and kids and, uh, the syndicate.com, if you're accredited and you want to read my deal memos, it, it's free to join. You can read the deal memos for free. And if you happen to see a company like a blockable or a com.com and you like it, you could put in, I set the, we set the minimum at $2,000. So we want people, we want it to be accessible. Other syndicates make it ten or twenty-five thousand dollars, or if you invest directly, as you know, sometimes the minimum's fifty or hundred k. I said I want everybody to be able to try it who's accredited, so it's only two thousand dollars. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Jason. Hey, everyone! Thanks so much for listening. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode, as I'm always looking for ways to improve and make the show even better. You can leave a review at The Daily Podcast in iTunes or within Apple's podcast app. Really appreciate your feedback. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to my podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever else you tune in to listen. Talk to you next week.